went straight down the middle. Then it started to hook. So quite a win. And uh, and then we go on, Bruce, to the big one. Yeah, boy, what a what a victory, huh? Seventy three yes. masters. Tell us, tell us how how well, how you were playing when you went in there, and well, I, I hadn't played a lot of try. I usually played a full schedule. I'd play right up through Greensboro. I may skip Tucson or New Orleans, but I didn't miss many tournaments trying to prepare. That particular year, I hadn't played a lot of tournaments, and I didn't think my game was in that good a shape. I did play Greensboro, which was a week before. And when I remember driving down to Augusta, I didn't have a, a lot of um, high hopes, and there was nothing in the practice rounds that led me to believe that something special might happen. And I had an early tea time that first day. I remember it, it was very cold, and I'm warming up on the range, and the shots weren't going that good. But as it so happens in a round, on the first early holes, I hit a particularly good shot. There are a hole to put that kind of turned things around. And I started playing very well, and I shot 68 the first day I was playing with Peter Oosterhaus, which I was very happy with. And then the middle rounds, uh, I struggled. I was 73, 74 in the middle rounds, and I struggled. I missed a lot of greens and hit a lot of bad shots. And I guess I was very fortunate that third day, I think I shot 40 the front nine, but I was able to shoot 34 on the back nine. Yeah. And it, it was a real struggle. I remember 18, I didn't hit a particularly good drive. And I was way back there. I may have hit a three-wood off the tee. I remember I took a long iron. Instead, of tr- I put it just short and just to the right of the green. It rolled up just on the fringe. And I managed to two-putt. So I did things like that. just kept me in the tournament. Yeah, I played the shot. That I felt like I could play at that time. I didn't try to do something that I felt like I couldn't do. And so I kept myself in the tournament. I was four shots behind starting the last day behind Oosterhaus. And I birdied the first three holes. I made about a 20-footer on the first hole. And the second hole, I made a nice putt for a birdie. Then the third hole, I hit it very close and made a birdie. And I go to the fourth tee, and I think, well, I'm right back in the tournament unless the leaders bury those thirsty holes, and I don't think they will. So I'm right back in the tournament. And I parred all the way around. I buried the eighth hole, the par five, and I was walking from the ninth green to the tenth. There's a little bit of a walk there. Yeah. I'm thinking, well, if I ever had a chance to win this tournament, I've got it today <laughs> if I can play a good back nine. Well, I was playing with Johnny Miller, and that tenth hole – was playing very long because we'd had that day that it rained out. It was very wet. I hit a nice drive down the left side, but it didn't get all the way down in the bottom. And Johnny did the same thing. I hit a four wood, a beautiful shot on the green, and I three putted. I putted past the hole from about 25 feet and missed that. And then on 11, I hit a very indifferent iron just to the right of the green which you'll see a lot of players do even today. Oh, yeah. And I didn't play a very, I didn't play a very good pitch and I missed that putt. So I bogey 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 and walking to the 12th tee. I thought, well, I may have lost that chance. All I can do is play these next seven holes the best I can. And I just forgot about that. I hit a good shot on 12 and on 13. 
I hit a drive that went way around the corner. Of course, the tee was a little bit up front where it is now. And I had a four iron on the green, and now I'm laying up with a driver and a three metal to lay up. (laughs) I hit two beautiful shots there and made a birdie. And then I get to 15. And um, before I teed off that third round, I started swinging a lot better because I thought, well, I'm not going to try to make the ball go very far. I'm not going to try to reach beyond my normal distance. I'm just in the problem. I have to keep the mental discipline that I can do that for 18 holes. What, no matter what kind of shot I have, I'm just going to make a swing and not try to push it. So I got to 15 and that's the only time I got out of that mindset because I wanted the ball to go further. And I tried to hit a little further, further. Well, I mishit it. It didn't go as far. Right. And I'm out, I'm out there in a spot about 10 or 15 yards behind these mounds that they used to have in the fairway that I dropped balls in practice rounds. I knew that that mound there that was a spot where I could go for the green. But I'm about 10 or 15 yards behind it. So I'm standing there debating. At that time, they had the big mounds on the right side where the gallery stood. Now they right. put trees over there. They don't wave the mounds. <clears throat> and there are a lot of people from Gainesville there watching me. And I'm thinking, well, I need a birdie to win this tournament. And this is probably my best chance. But I've got to hit this three with my very best. Anything less than that is not going to get make the green. But I've got to do this. And I managed to hit the best three wood I could have dropped. It's okay, 50 balls, 50 balls down there and probably could not hit as good a shot. It pitched just on the right side corner of the grain, and it went over the grain. But when I pulled out that three wood, and it was a wood back then, the gal went, oh, God, I can't believe he's going for the grain here. <laughs> now, that does not do a lot <laughs> for your confidence at that time. No. <laughs> but I thought, well, no, I got to do this. So I played a beautiful pitch from just over the grain. It was a kind of a front left pin. If I don't play a very good pitch and leave it short, there's a good chance I can three putt. And if I play the too shot aggressive. too far, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go in the pond yeah. over the grain. Yeah. Right. That was a beautiful shot, too. And I pitched it about five feet just below the flag, and I made the putt. And then I managed to par 16, 17, and 18. I uh, hit a nice shot off the tee with a three wood. And I'm looking at that front left pin, and I'm about 163 yards up to the front edge of the green. But that is so much hill, it plays, for me, a club longer going up that hill. And so it plays like 170 yards. And at that time, I couldn't hit a six iron that far. But I think, well, I got to get close. And to get close, if I land the ball on the green, it's going to go up on the top level. And too many people are three-putted from up there. I want to keep the ball on the lower level. And I'm talking, I'm verbalizing out loud to my caddy. I don't really want any input from him. He's trying to talk me into hitting a five iron, which he's thinking, just get the ball on the green. Right. And I knew what he was thinking, and I kind of brushed him off. <laughs> I took a six iron, and I hit a beautiful shot. I couldn't hit it better. It landed just short of the green, but it didn't bounce up like I expected it to. But it's right in the fringe with about a 15 or 20-footer right at the flat hole, and I hit a nice putt. It did go in, but I went up and tapped it in. And then I signed my card, and they take us over to Butler Cabin to right. watch the finish of the tournament. Yeah. 
And I go, I go in, and the members and the chairman say, "Congratulations, nice round." And that's about all I can say. There's the tournament is still to be decided because J.C. Steed was playing 17, and he's one shot behind. And I sat down beside Nicholas there, and we're watching the tournament. And J.C. had played his second shot in the front bunker on 17, and had played out about eight or ten feet from the hole. And he's getting ready to play. Nicholas says. You got the tournament one. There's no way you can make that putt. Well, you know what happens next. Yeah. It goes right in. Right. So I think nice observation there, Jack. <laughs> if you have any more, just if you just keep them to yourself. So. I don't want to hear them. <laughs> so <laughs> he comes to 18. He's got about a 25-footer downhill at that cup. He's over on the right side of the green. So I'm exhausted from the rounds. I'm thinking, I got to take the attitude. He's going to make this putt. Get ready. Because yeah, I got to get mentally ready to play another 18 holes, which I don't feel like doing, but I've got to take the attitude. He's going to make this putt. I've seen it happen too often. Yeah. Well, fortunately he for me, he did miss the putt. And um, so that, that was uh, a dream come true for me there to win, to win that tournament. Yeah. I mean, uh, as a, as a, as a Georgia boy, Winning that tournament in Augusta, that had to be something that you thought about on the yes. putting green as a little kid a lot. Oh, yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah, I've, I've still on that putting green with Hogan and Snead and all the players and fantasized about winning that tournament. And I stood there with Tiger Woods, and you, you dream about those things. Yeah, you do. So as we continue to look back on that uh, – on that great victory, uh, you'd mentioned a, a, a weather delay. That final round was actually then played on a Monday, wasn't it? On a Monday, that's correct. It was played on a Monday. Uh, one thing I want to mention uh, at the Champions Dinner, uh, someone informed me it's customary for the champion to have dinner with Cliff Roberts. I, oh, yes, yes, I want to do that. And I said, My parents are here, and I'm not sure they have the proper attire, and I like for them to join us. And they said, <coughs> That's okay. We'll take care of it. So they were there, which uh, was great. And Cliff Roberts said to me, he'd say, uh, what do you need? Is there anything you need? And I said, no, no, it doesn't get any better than Cliff, this Cliff. (laughs) So then I said, well, I want to go home tonight, Cliff, and I don't think I can make that drive, the condition I'm in. And about five minutes later, he had a private plane that flew me back. Oh, my. Yeah. Nice. Oh, nice. So that's terrific. Well, we want to talk about your experiences at the Masters dinner and and a little bit more about that victory. I'll just mention a couple of other things about that tournament. Uh, Gary Player missed this one. He was recovering from surgery, but won it the next year. And uh, it's the only one he missed from 1957 all the way through 2009. So he made 52 of 53 Masters. That's the one he missed. Uh, it was the yes. final Masters for Gene Sarazen and Ralph Goodall. Uh, a yeah. couple of, uh, you know, a couple of former champions. Yes. And uh, as I remember, the, you were the first native Georgian to win the event, right? Well, actually, Claude Harmon was born in Savannah. Ah, and was left there is left there as an infant. Okay. Ah, okay. Uh, so actually, he was a Georgian. And then after I won, I was the first. Larry Moss hold that pitch shot on 11 to beat Greg Norman, that right. famous pitch shot they hold. And he's from... Columbus, who lives in Columbus now, he may have been from Augusta at that time. Yeah. yeah. And we've had Larry on the show to uh, recount that win for us as well. Oh, good. Um, yeah, he's been, he was great. 
Bruce, you finished tied for eighth that uh, particular year, six back. Do you remember how much money you won? Oh, uh, <laughs> probably wasn't very much. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what you did with that forty-seven hundred and fifty dollars that you took home. Uh, well, you know, we, we look, Tommy. We look at what's happened to golf today, but I must say that that. Uh, the 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 guys that we played with they were all terrific gentlemen we're, you know i mean what diverse uh, ways they got into the game you know not all of them were college right. college graduates and places like that so you know we come up at a, in a great time in the game of golf i think because you know oh. led led by Arnie's army yes i agree yeah. i can agree yeah they were all tremendous competitors Hear that? That's the sound of a walk-off albatross, a two on a par five to win a two-day golf tournament. That shot happened to me. One in 600 million odds. Since then, people call me Albie. Now, I've told this story so often, my friends can't take it. I'm pretty sure my wife, next time I tell her, she's going to leave me. So I decided to start a podcast to tell the entire world about it because it deserves it. It's the craziest shot you've never heard of. And guess what? There's tons more stories like this all around golf. And that's what our podcast is all about. Join me and my fellow degenerates, Panda and Shepard as we dive into them. Insane bets, crazy what-if scenarios, and all the you-had-to-be-there type moments in golf. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Did I tell you about Malbatross? Now, Tommy, the, the, the thing I, I'm not sure I was aware of until I did a little research, but uh, coming into this event, you had 14 second-place finishes in addition to your wins. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I tried to count those up and, uh, I, I couldn't remember some of them, but that's, that's probably true. I tried to do it one time and you know, I counted maybe 15. And uh, anyway, I, that second year, 63, I finished four times. I tied in Memphis and lost in a playoff. And the next week I finished second at Indianapolis. And then later in the summer at Cleveland, I birdied the last four holes to tie Palmer and Lima. Right. And Palmer won the 18-hole playoff. So I had four second-place finishes. That was the year guy said I should be doing a lot better. Uh, well. I didn't, I didn't forget I didn't forget that one. I'm not going to bring – I don't want to bring up the subject, <laughs> but, but you you did have one of the rather poorest – Oh yeah. Uh, Playoff oh, records, yeah. you know, zero oh, yeah. for I'll, four. and <laughs> I'll, I'll agree with that. There's no denying that. I, I have to own up to that. Yes, well, I agree with that. You lost but, to some pretty good players, George Archer twice and Tony Lemer and Arnold Palmer. I mean, you know, that's a group. Yes. Yeah, in Memphis, uh, I had a two-shot lead going to 17. It was a long par three. Uh, as a two- or three-iron shot for us. And I had birdied 16, and Lima's body language told me he had given up on winning. He looked like he had just given up when I was two ahead going to 17. We both hit shots on the green. He stepped up to his 30-foot, didn't even look at it, stepped up and hit it, and it goes in. Boom. And I missed him. And so now he's got a one-shot, and he gets very interested now yeah. with a one-shot lead with one to play. And it started to rain. He hit a beautiful drive. And it was reachable in two, and I had to drive down the right side near the rope, and the guys were putting their umbrellas up, and I kind of hit the crowd and bounced back. 
And so I made five, and he made four to tie me. Then he won the first hole in the sudden death playoff. So anyway, I had a chance to to, to win on the 18th. I just didn't make four. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you just you aren't good enough to do it at that particular time. Yeah. yeah. He he was in uh, Tony was in that playoff with Arnold Palmer too at the 1960. Yes, he was. Open, Right. Yeah. Palmer, uh, Palmer shot 67. Lehman and I shot 70 there at uh, Beachwood Country Club in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, you know, the, the next time was the 72 Glenn Campbell LA Open, the George Archer uh, with Mike Hill, right. all three of you in the playoff there. Yeah. Uh, yes. And um, actually, uh, Archer, I can't remember what he shot, but I think Hill and I shot about the same thing. He shot maybe You're 67. Right. Yeah, you guys and shot 68, that, and uh, Archer shot 66. Yeah, oh, well, shot better than I thought he did then. <laughs> but Archer was a tremendous player. He came back from a lot of injuries. and he did. And he'd come back and play as good, if not better, than he did before, which is very unusual. He had bad elbow and a bad back, and he came back from all those surgeries. Well, we had fun with uh, Ben Crenshaw. Bruce will remember uh, – uh, talking to him about his 0 and 8 playoff record. <laughs> so don't feel bad, well, Tom. Well, it's all there to read. Anybody can access it if they want to. That's right. Well, you know, the one thing that, that we've learned going through and, and doing the, these interviews with all these great players like yourself, uh, you get to the playoff and it's just a crapshoot, isn't it? It's, it's sort of a coin toss. Yeah. Well, yeah. It is. Um, at Memphis, I, I, I guess I didn't have the right mental set for a playoff. I had, was so disappointed with him burning the last two holes and me not being able to win that went to that first hole and I was just kind of out of it. I just, I, I just wasn't there at the time. I put my second shot in the bunker and made bogey. So I, I just mentally wasn't ready. And, uh, it, Beachmont there, uh, the crowd was huge, and they're, of course, all for Arnold Palmer. Yeah. And I played just, I just played so so in that playoff. Actually, at, at Greensboro, when uh, Archer won that tournament, and the first playoff hole there was like 15, and he made about a 30 foot putt. <laughs> we were both on the green about side by side, and he was a great play. He steps up and holds about a 30 footer, and I missed mine, so the game's over. Yeah. yeah. So anything, things like that happen to you, you just, you just aren't good enough at that time. Yeah. yeah. George Archer should, he could sure putt, couldn't he? Oh boy. He could. Some guys told me that on the front side where he was finishing, he made long putts on eight or nine, which was his 17th and 18th hole just to tie me. So things like that happen to you. And, yeah. and as I said, our players have to play in such a way that you win. You just don't blow them away a lot of times, like Tiger Woods could do that, win by 12 shots or whatever. But people ask me, well, how many shots you win by? I said, hell, I was lucky to win by one. What are you talking about? How many shots did I win by? <laughs> well, let's uh, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about some of your major championship experience. We talked about the Masters victory, but, of course, you, you played a lot of Masters over the years by virtue of that uh, victory you had. Yes. Uh, you were the oldest player to make the cut at age 63 in 2020, weren't you? Or yes, not 2020, right. that would have been what, about 20, uh, it was 20, I guess, 20, so, huh? yes, it was two, it was 2000, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was paired with, uh, Charlie Koo and Gay Brewer and, um, uh, I was trying to remember the first round. I shot 72. I played really well that day and, uh, the last hole, 
I missed the green to the left. It seems like I was behind the trees on the right. You have to be, hit a big slice around those trees, and it, I missed the green to the left. And I put it up, and I made about an eight-footer, which is a great putt to make to shoot 72. And I go in the scoring trailer, and I finish my card. I walk out, and the writers are saying, do you know you beat Tiger Woods today? I said, well, what's that got to do with it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what, what, so, so what? Yeah. So I got three more rounds to play. What are you making of this? So I did. So what? <laughs> well, <laughs> or I was happy with my seventy-two. That's all. I, seventy-two. That's all I wanted to talk about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so anyway, the next day, um, I um, I think I shot maybe thirty-nine on the front nine, and I was really nervous. God, I was antsy. I knew I had a chance to make the cut, and I was really antsy and nervous over every shot. And on 11, I made about a 20-footer for a birdie. And all of a sudden, it's like, whew, God, I think I can do this now. And I played real well, parred all the way in to shoot 72. But like I said earlier, sometimes you aren't going real good, but you'll hit a particular shot at a particular time, and it just turns around around yeah. for you. And I, I actually, I, Manuel Del Torre had come down, and he was in the crowd. And that night at dinner, he said, you know, when you made that putt at 11, your body demeanor totally changed. <laughs> and I thought, that's just like Manuel. Probably nobody else noticed that. Yeah. But he was, he was so observant. He said, you weren't the, you were a different player after that. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. interesting isn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. And that was right. I hadn't said anything to anybody about it. But that was exactly right. I was going to mention it to him earlier, but he brought it up. Yeah. I had a good, I had a good local friend there watching me play, uh, Jeb Bates, and I asked him one time, "Did you notice any change in me in that round?" After he said, "No, I didn't notice." People just don't observe that closely, yeah. but Manuel did. He did, and he could see that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you had a few other good finishes at the Masters, didn't you? I mean, we'll talk about uh, some of these. Sixty-seven. You were. Uh, in top ten, tied eighth uh, the, the year Gabe Brewer won, and uh, and then uh, you played well in that year with the Roberto Di Vincenzo incident, yes. which we'll talk about. The year Bob Golby then was the winner. Uh, the next year, again another top ten, George Archer wins. The next year, top, yeah. you know T five, Billy Casper wins. I mean, you had a really good stretch leading up to yes, you're winning seventy three. Yes, I did. Now, now, Tommy, one yes, thing, I did. One thing we didn't talk about that I want you to talk about first before we get to this DiVincenzo thing. When you won in 73 and you were reviewing your card for the final round with Johnny Miller as your marker, right? you caught something, didn't you? Yes, I did. That's the way it works. That That's the way it's supposed to work. Yep. Yeah. We sat down at the table, and um, I'm looking at my card, and I go right to 13. I said, Johnny, you put – five here i made four you remember i had a drive and an iron on the ground he said oh yeah 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 and he changed it and he initialed it that's the way it's supposed to work if right. you check your scorecard but right. if you walk away it anything might happen but people don't understand the seriousness of that because uh you know the friendly guy will play and they say oh yeah he shot 72 we know what he shot and so they think that's it but um yeah. i did i did catch it i didn't think much of it because that's happened before uh, to other players. And uh, I did mention it, I guess, in the press room, and the writer <laughs> mentioned it. 
And when I saw Johnny, he said, what are you trying to, I'm not trying to do anything to you. I'm just telling you what happened, Johnny. I'm just checking my scorecard. Yeah, right. I'm not trying, why are you taking it so personally? I didn't do anything to you, idiot. Yeah, yeah. But I guess. I don't know what people think, but anyway, well, uh, it was odd that odd that he would say, "What were you doing to me?" Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, right or wrong, uh, you know, the public reaction to the incident in '68 was probably unfair to several people, including yourself. Yes, because as you said, as a player, you're responsible for knowing the rules. You're responsible for checking your card. You're responsible for showing up to the first tee on time. Yeah, you can't yes. blame anybody else. Right. Yeah. So take us through that. This was, uh, uh, you were the marker for Roberto DiVincenzo. Di- right. Roberto was playing on his 45th birthday. And why don't you just t- yes. kind of take us through the day because he was in contention. He, he, he came out like a house of fire, didn't he? Yes, he did. As I recall, he holed his second shot on the first hole for an eagle. He played great all the way around. And uh, he came to, um, he came to 17. He hit a beautiful second shot, like a pitching wedge. Uh, it could have been a take. Could have walked up and finished and tapped it in. And I was on the back of the green, working hard to get down in two putts. And my first putt was well outside his. I'm working hard to make the second putt, and I did. And he stepped in, tapped his in real quickly. We walked with a twosome. We walked real quickly to the 18th green. And I didn't have a chance to record that score. Usually, I try to keep up. Yeah. And we hit our drives on 18, and he was over behind the trees on the right. I've heard writers say he hooked his drive. No, he hit it to the right. He sliced it. And then they say he hooked his second shot. He didn't. He was trying to slice it around the trees. They didn't slice it up. It missed the green and went down to the left. I'm on the green in two, and I'm watching this. I'm thinking, God, if he makes four here, maybe he can win the tournament. And he put it up. He missed about an eight-footer. We sit down. I'm thinking so much about him. Too bad he made a five there. He could have made a four and probably won. I put five on 18, and without thinking, I put four on 17 because that, I had that on my mind so much. And I handed his card, and he was so disappointed that he was sitting there with his head in his hands. They have pictures of him. It wasn't after. The, it was before this occult. Yeah. And and Charlie Coe ducks under the rope. They just had a table out in the open. People are leaning over the rope trying to see what you were doing, trying to talk to you. And um, Charlie Coe says, they want you in the press room, Roberto. He grabbed his card. He scribbled his name and was gone. Boom. Just like that. And I'm sitting there checking my card three or four times. And I'm thinking, my God, I, I, I hope that card was correct. He didn't even look at it. So I'm looking at the scoreboard, and I'm looking at his card, and I'm thinking, there's something wrong here. And I looked at his card, and I went right to 17. I thought, oh, my God, I put four there. So the guy sitting there working, he had not taken the cards. They were just sitting on the table in front of him. And I said, where's Roberto? I knew he was in the press room. He said, well, he's been in the press room. I said, you better get him back here. And he said, what's wrong? I said, he signed an incorrect card. So he comes back, and I said, Roberto, God, I'm sorry. I don't know what to say, but I put a four down on 17. He said, okay, let's change it. I said, no, we can't change it, Roberto. And then it was like he just said that like a reaction. Then he realized what I was saying, and he was okay. I said, no, we can't do that. So then we sat down, and I sat down with him while Gobi's group finished and a bunch of groups finished, and 
they didn't have a place to sit down at that table to check their card. They had to kneel down, and, and I'm just sitting there with Roberto. Of course, he's kind of hanging his head. He's so disappointed. And then I sat there for a long time, and nobody approached me as to what happened. No writers, nobody talked to me, anything. So I go up to the locker room, and I'm in the locker room for 30 or 40 minutes waiting. Getting my, Nobody ever approached me. Nobody ever talked to me. A writer never asked me what happened. I go out to my car. And I'm getting ready to leave. My wife's waiting on me. I'm going to drive home. And we leave. And um, nobody ever talked to me. And the next day, Jesse Outler with the Atlanta Constitution said, I fled from the scene. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I thought, what? That beauty, aren't they? All you, all you got to do is talk to me and tell me to come to the press room. All you got to do is talk. Nobody ever approached me. I don't know if they understood what in the hell had happened. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. I got, yeah, I got a lot of bid press about that because we felt so sorry for Roberto and they didn't want to blame anybody. They wanted to blame me or they wanted to blame the rule or they wanted to blame somebody. But anyway, it was a terrible thing, but it's happened before. And Doug Doug Sanders is playing the Pensacola Open one year and he had a four shot lead after two rounds and somebody started talking to him and he turned around and walked away and did not sign his card and he was disqualified. So when you sit down to do that, it's a very important thing you're doing. Yes, it is. And I don't, and I don't think the weekend golfer realize the, realizes the importance of it. But uh, and I felt terrible about it. But you know, in fairness, Roberto accepted responsibility for it. He didn't blame anybody he did. but himself. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And in retrospect, absolutely. he had a wonderful Hall of Fame career, won majors, and, and right. Uh, you know, does that. Thankfully, wasn't his yes. only chance. But, you know, you described the scene, Tommy, coming off that green, literally just a table and a couple of chairs sitting there out in the very open, wasn't it? Yeah. Very open. Pe- people are trying to talk to you. They're leaning over, trying to say, what did you shoot or something? You're trying to get rid of them, and they're tapping you on the shoulder, trying to talk to you. And, yeah, it was chaotic. They don't do that now. They put them no. out, They take them to the clubhouse so right. they're isolated. Yeah. Or they put them in a trailer so they're isolated and can do that. The Augusta National made that change, too. Yeah, I was just so involved in him trying to make four. But I wish he had just sat there just a couple of minutes longer yeah. and kind of collected himself. But he was so upset. And I can understand yeah. while he was yeah. upset. Absolutely. Augusta did make a change the following year. They put up a scorer's yes. tent, so you had a little privacy yes. to do your business after the round. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. One thing I want to say, for years, I didn't even say Roberto said, let's change it. I thought, no. Uh, he didn't mean anything by that. It was just a reaction on his part. Now, when I said, no, no, we can't do that, Roberto, then he was okay. I didn't even say anything about it till just – here we are, and I mentioned it, and I'm not saying that in any criticism of him. No, of course you're not. And I, I didn't mention it to anybody for years and years because it sounds like I'm throwing him under the bus or something, and I, I did not want to do that. No. So uh, you've been to a lot of master's dinners. Put, a, put us and our listeners into that room, if you will, and tell us uh, a little bit about that experience. Okay. Well, they have uh, – a cocktail hour where you have cocktails and hors d'oeuvres and it's in the champion's locker room and it spills over to the porch outside that overlooks Magnolia Drive. And and the guys are coming in and I'm trying to meet the young guys and wish them luck and the other guys I'm trying to wish them and luck and try to meet them. And everybody pretty much is doing that. 
and they're trying to just make a connection with the different players. And then we go into the bigger room, just off the locker room, for the dinner. And it's an open seating dinner. You can sit wherever you want to. At the front table, Crenshaw is there, and the chairman, who's the new chairman now, and the new winner, and anybody else that wants to can sit there. We take a group photo, and then you can sit down. You can sit wherever you want to. And Crenshaw makes some remarks, welcoming the guys back, congratulating the winner, and then the chair, new chairman gets up and makes a few welcoming remarks. And he may mention any changes that they've made on the course. And then the floor is pretty open. You can say anything you want to. We have dinner. There isn't a lot of discussion going on at dinner. But now in the last few years, people are getting up and talking more, like Nicholas and Palmer and Player and Floyd this year. Whereas in the past, after the dinner was over, the new champions recognized that, that was pretty much the end of it. Hmm. But now players are talking. They're talking about how much it means to them, how much it meant to their career. And they may talk a little bit about the rounds they played. And it's great to hear that. And, of course, Billy Casper, uh, he's not with us anymore. But Gary Player is a great speaker. And he always has a lot of very appropriate things to say. He got up this year early. He In Japanese, he recognized the winner and said a lot of things very well said to congratulate him. Yeah. And I couldn't he, – he was speaking English, which he does not do fluently, and very low. And I was kind of in the back, and I didn't pick up a lot of what he said. But the other guys really liked the comments he made. Yeah. And then uh, after the dinner, I remember this year, someone said, uh, Mark, tell them about that first year you played here as an, a as an amateur. And he said, well, okay, I'll do that. And he said, it was, he was making fun of himself. He said, I won the national amateur, so the next year I'm playing in the Masters. And the first day, I'm so nervous, I can hardly tee the ball up on the first tee. <laughs> And I shot something like 42 on the front nine. I'm playing with Freddie, uh, um, I'm sorry, Fuzzy Zeller. Yeah. <laughs> we get over to 11. <laughs> and after a pretty good drive, I hit this big high hook. And I didn't know where it went. Well, it hit the scoreboard. <laughs> it knocked a hole in the scoreboard. <laughs> and he said, I'll go, I'll go walking down to the official. He said, did you see my ball go in the water? He says, no, it hit the scoreboard up here and knocked a hole <laughs> in the scoreboard. He says, now I'm really embarrassed. All those people up on the 12th tee are watching me down there, and they're looking at the scoreboard. And I dropped the ball, and I chunked it in the water. And he made some kind of hovering to score. And so I finished and my dad and I are driving back. He says, well, that's okay, Mark. You did okay, considering. He says, you know, Dad, I'll probably n <clears throat> never play in this tournament again. But it, it was okay. But, you know, ne 25 years later, I won the tournament. Isn't that a great story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that sure is. That's yeah, a is. great story, yeah. That sure yeah. is. Only, only, only in America. Yeah. 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 And, I, and Tommy, I think uh, Bruce and I have probably had a chance to talk to at least 12 or 13 other Masters winners and been able to do All what right. we did with you and recalling their victories and have them talk a little bit about their experiences at Augusta National. Yeah, that's great. You have, you have a lot of experiences there that sometimes you'll forget about and somebody may say something that will jog your memory of an incident right. or something that happened. 
they're all in the back of your mind. And I can remember things that happened better than I can remember names. I, but I can remember incidences and things that happened and shots that were hit. And just like I remember Bruce and winning there at Selma Marina at, with those fiberglass clubs and uh, <laughs> things like that I'll remember. Yeah. And anyway, uh, at my age, I can't remember people's name. Well, I can remember one other thing that you did too, Mr. Aaron. You had a a nice career on the senior tour. You're winning $3,642,000. That was a nice way to uh, go through your 50s and 60s, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed the senior tour. Um, When I quit playing at 45, the senior tour was really getting started at that time. And I thought, well... In five years, when I'm 50, I'll be fun playing for seven or eight tournaments. Well, all of a sudden, when I turn 50, I'm playing 25 tournaments, <laughs> yeah. which I enjoy. <laughs> but my wife says, you want to do that again? We've already done that. No, that once already. <laughs> yeah, Jimmy says, you want to do that again? <laughs> I said, yeah, I like competitive. I like it. So I enjoyed it. And um, I did, was fortunate enough to win one tournament in Hawaii. Yeah, and uh, I I played fair, but I didn't have much preparation. Those five years, I had spent twenty years playing really hard, working hard, playing a lot of tournaments, and I just could put golf on the background. I wish now, in retrospect, that I had practiced more and played more to get ready for the senior tour, but I didn't. But I enjoyed the senior tour. It's it's really going great now. Actually, we played we play. Uh, Maybe a seven or eight hundred thousand dollar tournaments were yeah. bigger than the tournaments I played on the PJ Tour. Now the purses they've gone up. I, I looked in the. I don't look at the paper a lot, but I looked at the paper recently. I think a senior player won. He won like seven hundred thousand dollars. I think I won. I won seventy thousand. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, it's it, yeah quite a difference. But yeah, I like the senior tour a lot. But you're 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 shifting from the regular tour to the senior tour. It was pretty pretty popular back uh, in our era because we didn't play much after we were forty, forty two, forty three, and then we right. took those took all those years off. It's hard to catch up because I can recall one question I asked Mr. Hogan one day. I said to him, Ben. Uh, how many days a year do you take off? You know, do you, do you take like he said to me? He looked at me like I handed him a snake, and he said, "He said take a day off, Bruce. Are you crazy?" He said, "You miss a day of practice, it takes you two days to get back to where you were. So, you know, when you take the five years off like you did, it 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 it, it takes a toll on your game, yeah. no doubt about it." It takes a while, and I've heard him say he loved hitting golf balls. He loved to practice. He didn't think of it as work. No, he loved to do that, and I enjoy practicing too. I enjoy hitting balls. I don't do much of it now, but I enjoy it. Tommy, who were some of the, uh, the 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 great ball strikers that you really admired coming up through the game? Well, I know um, people ask me that, and uh, that term "ball striker" is kind of pretty much new to me. If a guy hit 13 or 14 greens in a round, or fit, I thought he was, as they say, a good ball striker. Everybody hit the ball very well. Some players, they would hit it and have a little bit of a different sound. Maybe that's what they're talking about when they say ball striker. But if a guy hits 14, 15, 16 greens, he's a good player. He's a good ball striker, if that's the way they want to express it. Yeah. 
But they were all good. They were all good. Uh, Nicholas, Weisskopf, Palmer, they were all very good players. They, I played with them a lot. They, they drove down the fairway most of the time and they hit most of the greens and regulation. And I had a friend caddying for me once in Florida and I was paired with Nicholas and we, we finished the round. This was a very unusual guy. Anyway, it was a very, Windy day and the greens were very hard. He said, "Well, that Nicholas didn't impress me that much." And I said, "What are you talking about?" He says, "Well, he just hit the ball in the green on every hole." I said, "What did you expect?" I mean, he's hitting. He must have hit eighteen greens on a windy day with the greens very hard. That impressed me. Yeah. But he said, "Well, I like the way he hovered his club over the grass and dressed." <laughs> And so I said, okay, whatever whatever it is. And I said, yes, he does that. But it was so funny for him saying that. And I guess he thought he was going to hit it right by the hole every time. But under those conditions, to hit it 15 or 20 feet from the hole was a real good shot. The, change, the, the changes I see at Augusta, which I never hear anybody talk about, I did hear Nicholas mention it once, the greens are so much softer with this bent grass. They, you see whole ball marks in the greens with big plugs knocking out. You never saw that when I played those greens. You might see a little skid mark because it was Bermuda was starting to pop through and it was overseeded with rye and they were very hard. And a lot of holes like that 17th hole, I'd try to land the ball just over that front bunker and hope it stopped on the green. Now they hit it right in there and they back it up. I never saw that happen when I played there. So they're much softer. They're fast. They're much faster, but they're much softer than they used to be. And I did hear Nicholas mention that once. The course is a lot longer. They talk about that, but length doesn't matter today. It doesn't matter how long you make the course. But if you have rough and hard greens, it makes a difference. Absolutely. Let's uh, briefly talk about your Ryder Cup career. You had a couple of chances as a player to participate. The first one in 69, which uh, 69, which is, yes. uh, was at Burkdale, and, uh, and Sam yeah. Snead and Eric Brown were the captains. Uh, it was a tie, and uh, you can tell us a little bit more about that because it was a famous tie, wasn't it? It was. It was a famous tie, and um, uh, they don't do that now, but Snead took a very casual approach to these matches. and. He said one time, I think we could bring two or three teams over that could beat this team. And that was kind of the laissez attitude about it, which was not good. And I walked out to the eighth green with Nicholas and Jacqueline finishing there because we knew it was very important. And they had pretty similar putts, and Nicholas made his first. It looked like it was a spontaneous reaction to me. He hadn't thought this and planned this. How could you plan something like that? He picked yeah. up his ball, Jacqueline's ball, and handed it to him. And to me, it looked like it was a spontaneous thing, but it was a great thing to do. Yeah. It turned out great. But I, I, and it, it, I would like to have seen Jacqueline make the putt myself, personally. Yeah. But Nicholas conceded, and it's all history now. And it worked out fine. Now my understanding is Sam wasn't too crazy about that concession. It, he, he was not very happy about it, and a lot of players were not very happy. I'd like to have seen Jacqueline make it, but that's the way it played out, yeah. and it's okay. Yeah, and then uh, uh, four years later, you got a win at uh, at Muirfield. This was Jackie Muirfield. Burke as your captain with Bernard right. Hunt. And uh, yes. I think that's the first year they added Ireland to the team name, so it, it was then known as the GB&I team. Yes. Yeah. 
Jackie Burke took a much more serious approach to it. He he made us realize how important it was, how good these players play, and how good we were expected to play. I didn't play very good there. I had um, actually, after I won the Masters, I never played nearly as well as I did before I won the Masters. Mm. And uh, no, not not nearly as good. And I didn't play very good there, but I'd played well enough to make the Ryder Cup team. But he, he took a totally different approach. It was very important. And he had the meet, meetings, and he, it was impressed upon us that he expected the best out of us. So, Tommy, we always uh, wrap this up by asking our guests a couple of questions, and we always get some interesting responses. So, Bruce, why don't you start? So, Tommy, here's my first question. If you knew today, if you could take what you know today and go back when you first started on the tour, would you have done anything different? Well, I don't know. Um, You know, you can always speculate on that and say, I would have done this and I would have done that and I would have been better, but that's pure speculation. You just don't know. I, I don't know. I uh, I may have tried to have done some things differently. There were there were not the sports psychologists around at that time, and I would have tried to maybe explore that more about how to handle myself better mentally on the golf course. Um, but I, I, if I sat down, I might think of other things. But that comes to mind. <laughs> <The> mental- <laughs> we've heard we've heard well, some interesting I, replies oh, to hey. it, and I know. Yeah, we have. And now yeah. Mike's got a couple of questions too. Well, uh, one, okay. one's a bonus question. This is a new one, Bruce, which I think we'll ask Lee Trevino tomorrow when we have him. So okay. we're going to put you in a time machine, uh, uh, Tommy. We're going to put you in a time machine and take you back to your early years on the tour. And on the time machine, you can take one club from today back with you. Which club would you take? <clears throat> well, ah. um, uh, gosh, I think the big-headed metal driver makes a difference. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, you can hit the ball pretty much all over the face and get a pretty good shot. With those persimmon clubs, it wasn't that way. You had to hit <laughs> a very small spot to get a good shot. There you go. And uh, so the golf ball is a lot better. It doesn't curve as much it doesn't hook and slice as much as it used to so the driver is a big thing now i hit the modern day irons i can't tell much difference in the iron personally they just go a little further (laughs) it it is go a little further if you miss hit them a little bit rather than come up short in the bunker they may just get over the bunker right and that's the thing that i noticed but i don't notice a big difference how these guys hit their six irons 230 yards i have no uh, clue no I, know. I, don't, I don't i don't understand that at all but um nicholas never hit his nine iron over 125 or 30 yards he didn't try to yeah, yeah. if he had a longer shot he'd take an eight iron you know, eight, you know, 150 yards he did seven and then they're hitting pitching weights is 150 yards and it works for them. Yeah. So well, that was back when a nine iron was a nine iron. Today it's probably got yeah. a seven yeah. on the same club, right? Well, it may yeah. be a nine on the bottom, but maybe a seven or eight, right? So, Tommy, one other question, Tommy, for me before Mike asks his last one: How would you like to be remembered? Hello. 
I gotta think. <laughs> I gotta think about that for a while. Okay. Um, I guess a guy that understood the <laughs> the game and played by the rules and respected the game and respected the game. Yeah, you know, good Bruce, for you. I think that's a great place to leave it. And I'll tell you what, I've been delighted to uh, be with this gentleman to uh, help him recount his great career in golf, particularly that uh, wonderful Masters victory in 1973. Uh, uh, Bruce, it's been a delight having Tommy Aaron with us. It has, and i got to say one more thing about Tommy Aaron. If you if you uh, went to all of the players that ever played golf with him and asked him what sort of guy he was, they'd all say he was a true gentleman, and that's who you were, Tommy Aaron. Thank you so much for your friendship. Thank you. Thanks to you, too, Bruce. And thank you, Mike. Thanks, Tommy. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. You were great, buddy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Good of the Game. And please, wherever you listen to your podcast on Apple and Spotify, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, spread the word, and tell your friends. Until we tee it up again, for the good of the game, so long, everybody. Whack down the fairway, it went smack down the fairway. Then it started to slice just a smidge off line It headed for two, but it bounced off nine My caddy says, long as you're still in the state, you're okay Yes, it went straight down the middle, quite a way